0: I was pleased to see you smile at
1: the top of our show, because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out
0: there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore.
2: Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike. And guys, we're going to shift our attention back to the Lakers today. We've been really focused on the playoffs over the course of the last couple of weeks, and it's been great. And it's been nice to get a little distance from this Lakers season. I don't know if that's been the case for you, but uh, for me, it's been nice to just have a little bit of separation and immerse myself in good basketball. That's been a nice palate cleanser as well. And I think it's get started to give us uh, more perspective on how to go forward. And t- so today I want to talk about our next head coach. And we could talk about specific names if you guys want to, uh, but I'm talking more like Who do we need and what do we need our coach to be? And because circumstances matter, D, coaching the Lakers and coaching LeBron and AD and just everything about us is not necessarily, or not everything, but many of the things about the Lakers do not reflect the same thing that the coaching experience would be elsewhere. And you're writing this great series right now for Silver Screen and Roll. And in one of the pieces you talked about, the coach Coaching the team that he has rather than the team that he wants. And you were talking about Frank Vogel. And then in another, you were talking about giving the coach the talent that the coach needs to succeed. If you know that he's good at cooking Italian food, like give him the right ingredients to make Italian food. And I'd love to begin that conversation regarding our next coach about – What does that look like? Because regardless of what approach we take this season, I think the most important thing that we need to do is just be all on the same page and row in the same direction. Like there's a few different paths that we can take, but we need to pick one and have everybody calibrated toward that. Yeah. So one of the things I think we often think about in terms
1: of head coaching candidates and the Lakers have had, I think, the unfortunate distinction of having to hire a lot of coaches in the last like, 15 years or yeah. so when you look at the number of guys that have held that job it's just like oh yeah since since Phil Jackson left right it's just like okay well there's Phil Jackson and then that, like oh well there's Mike Brown and there's Mike D'Antoni and then here comes Luke Walton and Byron Scott and and one of the things that happens I think Mike and, and I'd love to get your perspective about this as well because you've been a basketball fan a long time and even going back to the Minnesota days. Like you see a franchise that's sort of in turnover mode, and one of the things they often do is they go for the thing that the person that they just fired wasn't right, and and so it's just like okay, yeah. well we had a loosey goosey sort of offensive focus coach. This is like, oh time to get the drill sergeant defensive got right. right, and I feel like this happens <laughs> in yes. in all sports, but it's the idea of of course correcting, and a lot of times. Decision makers often go totally maybe in the opposite direction, but like sometimes too far, right? It's just like because there's a range and you want to stay probably somewhere in the middle, right? Like you don't want a guy that's too extreme in any one direction. And I'm not a big fan of like, oh, we'll just make up for that in the assistance. It's just like, OK. But I also want the head guy. The guy who's ultimately going to make all of the decisions. I want that guy to have as broad a view on things as possible and not just like taking the input from someone who sees things on the other side of the spectrum. And and so the Lakers just let go of a really defensive focused coach. And I think part of the idea might be like, oh, okay, well, what the Lakers really need is a guy who can improve their offense. But I don't look at it like that necessarily. The, Traits I want in a coach aren't necessarily about schematics. They're about like, okay, well, what are your values? Like, how do you communicate? How do you command a room? Can you build consensus? These are so many like management and personality things way more so than like what your schemes are, because I think schemes can and should be malleable. And that flexibility that I was talking about in the last post that you referenced, Pete, about Vogel I thought Vogel showed showed flexibility but it was a rigidity in the beginning of like what our approach should be and how you apply that to players where it didn't necessarily fit like the flexibility needed to be backwards it needed to be like oh I have an open mind at the beginning and then narrow my vision rather than my vision is narrow and then I have to expand it later
2: the order in which things happen is one of the key decisions that a coach makes so if that can if that's out of out of whack even if the decisions are are correct, right? Like if you do things out of order, that can knock things off. Of course, it's a difficult job.
1: Forget even being correct, just like understandable. If you go back to some of our conversations at the very beginning about the path that the Lakers were starting to go down with all of the injuries and what Vogel was doing, I understood them. And that and my ability to understand them made them palatable to me in ways that in hindsight, maybe they should not have been based off of a set, like based off of where those decisions were going to, what path that was going to put you down. Because then you have to use foresight in order to figure out, like, okay, well, then I'm going to have to backtrack somewhere else because we're already down this path. And so we've gone on a bunch of tangents here, but Mike, from my perspective, is much less about, like, oh, you're good at coaching offense or you're good at coaching defense. And it's much more about a skill set of dealing with people. Because as I've always said, like, this is a people job.
3: And I don't love the labels either when you're talking about not just coaches, but I suppose anything in life and coaching is a little tricky too, because we can watch players, we can watch their film. We can watch the things that they're good at. We can listen to their, their interviews and coaching is just always going to be a little bit more subjective for most people. Like there, there are some, I think that can, that really know the coaching groups well. And, but for the most part we get, okay, he's an offensive coach. He's a defensive coach. He's a player's yeah. coach, right? Whatever that means. He's a film room guy. You know, we we put coaches into labels. And in fact, it's because it's because of that lack of that total amount of information. And it's a difficult thing to do. So the reason I think I first, try, well, I don't want to say I first learned about it, but I think I first understood this. I happened to, my first job in sports was a, after some internships was a, like a paid internship with the Baltimore Ravens. And the head coach at the time, this was 2005 season, was Brian Billick. And they, of course, had won the Super Bowl a few years earlier based on this all time, you know, arguably right there with maybe the 86 Bears best defense in the history Mm -hmm. of the NFL. They -hmm. were incredible. It was Ray Lewis and Ed Reed and a bunch of just physical linemen and linebackers. They they were a a monster defense. And Billick's reputation when he got that job was the offensive genius of the Minnesota Vikings.
2: (laughs) That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah.
3: And that's how I went back with like because his daughters happened to go to my high school. And then his older daughter, um, shout out to Aubrey, went to Northwestern. So he would come to campus and I just got to know him well over the – I was interviewing for all these different TV internships. I happened to just go stay with them. And he's like, hey, just I just come to the facility, meet the PR guy. I'm like, well, I don't want to do PR. And they said, well, can you can, – I said, well, can I do .com stuff? Can I write what, like after the PR stuff at 9 p.m.? And they're like, I guess if you want to. I was like, great. I'll do the PR job.
2: (laughs) This is, look, this is, if you're looking for a job in sports media, everybody asks me, like, how do you make it in this? Mike just wrote his own job description right there. Yeah. He was like, hey, how about you meet the PR guy? And Mike's like, no, no, how about I do this instead? Uh, Okay. That's how you do it it. It's There's so much easier.
3: It's so much easier said than done, though. I had, I had to know the head coach. I had to be lucky enough to get in there, and then they had to actually listen to this idiot intern. Um. So, but yes, it did work <laughs> out for me.
2: Hey, look, we got we all got our different paths. We had a whole pot on this, Mike. But that's yeah. it, right there. Is write your own job description.
3: Well, and so the reason I, I bring this up though is because one of those nights in talking to Bill, like you just explaining to me how dumb. This whole thing was, is how he's like, he's like, do you think I don't understand defense? You know, but I'm yeah. the offensive guy because yeah. now he was the offensive coordinator, but he played football his whole life. And and again, football even is a little different where, where there is a big distinction, but really, when, as he explained it, there's not that much. Like if you can coach football to that level, you better damn well know the other side of the football.
1: Of course. If you're going to be a great offensive coach, imagine being able to say like, oh yeah, well, I don't know anything about defense sure as hell you do you're designing plays to beat the defense every exactly. single you better- play. there's an inherent baseline of knowledge you have about the other side of the ball so what that taught me and then
3: of course a big part of my job now i was just covering the coach before and after the game and listening i think there's two kinds of head coaches and the lakers have had uh, the lakers have had some of each and there's there's one side that's just a really good communicator Good with leadership, sort of a cooler kind of guy that could just get in any room, whether it's NBA players or kids, and they find a way to connect with that group. Then there's another side where it's just coaches that are really good. They're obsessed with basketball, the X's and O's. And the really the excellent coaches are the ones that have both. Yeah. And so I don't care, I don't care what those distinctions are sometimes, but I when I would if I were interviewing coaches, that's the thing that I'm looking for. And some of it's talking to the players of their past team. Some of it's talking to previous executives. But most of it's just when that coach gets in the room, I guess you have to be a person that can tell. And that's where these things get tricky. Some coaches are good at spewing that BS, you know, and then all of a sudden you find out maybe later in the season or a year later or two la- years later that it's a little bit phony. So it it's not always that easy. And that's mm-hmm. why it's so important to have the people that are making that decision be good at it because I, 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 that's what I want if I'm looking for the next Laker head coach. I want somebody that could both uh, address those both sides of those things and do it really well. And and of course, the best that I've ever seen do that is Phil Jackson, but he also may be the best coach ever, who's ever lived. So kind of tough to
0: meet that criteria.
2: I love where you just took this, Mike. Let's take a break and come back and continue down this road.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: So the Billick story is hilarious in part because, like, a real interesting question to kind of ask your friends is it, that that are also into basketball or whatever your sport you're into is what do you think a coach does because i think that it's one of the more obscured parts of the sport right is like we and and so since people don't really know what a coach does cuz it's this very specific experience and that's not to say that a lot of people couldn't do it. I I would actually recommend if anybody ever has the opportunity to coach a youth team or you know be an assistant for a high school team, if if you got the time, it's one of the great experiences coaching a boys team. Are your kids teams, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Really, yeah. I, was, I wanted to ask you about about uh, your experience with your boys in a bit and how that's kind of maybe shaped your views of coaching, watching your boys growing up and their development, and you know they're working with coaches and and all that. And so when the knowledge of something is obscured where people don't really know what a what a coach does on a day-to-day basis reputation becomes super important it's like well this person that i respect thinks that they're an offensive genius or a defensive genius or a this guy or a, that guy and then those labels get attached very quickly and they, and they get reinforced over time the more that that we say them i I generally agree with your point, Mike, about there being those two different tracks of like the person that connects with everybody and then the topical expertise the the wonk right the that person who just geeks out on the x's and O's of basketball to me, they are both important i The older I get, the more I put into the people part of it than the X's and O's and and all of the stuff that I, I still definitely geek out to, but I put a little more weight on it. But that's one of the things when I talk about there being different denominations in basketball as though it were a religion, D, is that we all kind of have our different calibrations of what matters and what doesn't. And so when we look at this Lakers job, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on what you put emphasis on considering these specific circumstances. Well, one of the ways that – and I think, Mike,
1: your insight here will be, I, I, I think, particularly important because I remember when Vogel got hired and Vogel was viewed, and I think rightfully so, as someone who was more on that side of being the wonk, right? Like the guy who was the X's and O's guru, the guy who had a reputation as – um you know, came up through the ranks, never played high level like pro basketball or or even high level college basketball and came up as an assistant and a video coordinator and worked in the film room and all of that stuff. The way that it was described then was, all right, well, how do you get in with LeBron James? Because remember, at the time that Vogel was hired, Anthony Davis was not yet a Laker. And the team was in flux. We talked about this like a pod Mm. about a month ago. Mm -hmm. And so how do you win over LeBron? Basically, LeBron was obviously very familiar with Vogel. He had played against his Pacers teams a lot when LeBron was with the Heat. But how do you but now that you're in the room with this guy, how do you get his attention? And how do you hold that that attention? And the way that it was described at the beginning that Vogel was able to win over LeBron. It was through his level of preparation and his understanding of like the defensive side of the ball, but basketball in general, right? Like, and LeBron is such a great thinker of the game that it said that if you don't have that acumen, mm-hmm. he will see through you and then you won't get his respect to me, Mike. There's a baseline level of, well, if you don't have that, then, then you're maybe lost. You're drawing dead if we were using poker terms here. So I think that there is that baseline level of, okay, well, how smart are you at basketball? And when you think about some of the teammates that LeBron has had with the Lakers and the guys that he's highlighted, And said that he's appreciated. It has been like the Rondos and the Jared Dudleys. And he did have Jason Kidd. And he did have a kinship with Jason Kidd and with Vogel as well. And so while I'm with you, Pete, that the people part of this should never be underplayed. And in fact, it should be properly rated and it should be valued accordingly. I think that when you coach a LeBron James team, you better have the tactics in line behind you or else you're not going to have what you need. The name that just came up to me as you were describing coaching there was Pat Riley.
3: And I'm very curious for for your guys, because I know Pat Riley from just hearing a million stories from Michael Thompson about him. And I know the success. I know what he did with the Lakers and then the Knicks and, and, of course, the Heat. And... I think there's zero question that Pat Riley has the personalities and the swagger and the confidence and just the mm-hmm. lighting up a room element. Okay. Right. That's that he's got that. He might, he might have more of that than anybody. And yep. what I'm curious about then was how you guys saw what, what was he from the X's and O's standpoint? How was he from a preparation and from film room and, and how much did those things merge? Cause I really don't know how that evolved over the course of his career. And I think some people right now are watching like Winnie time, right? And trying to take their cues on what Pat, Pat Riley was like there in this limited dose. But I, I would love to hear your perspective on Riley and how he fit into all that.
2: You just found the link to why I really like Miami. And Pat Riley, when I ask you, Mike, if I were to ask you, think of an NBA basketball coach. The, who's the first coach that would come to mind? Phil. Right. For me, but it's Pat, Pat Riley.
3: But Pat Riley pretty soon
2: after, yeah. For me it's Pat Riley because I grew up during the Showtime and again this is something that's not even a rational thing like Kobe was my guy in terms of like he was 2 years older than me and he was so he was the first laker that was ever even close to my age but if you ask me on a just very visceral level what does basketball look like it looks like Magic Johnson on a fast break right these are the ages 5 to eight years old and even younger than that, where it's just like the first experience. Like, I don't know anything about the X's and O's or anything about that. And all of that is kind of like learned after the fact. But the thing about Riley is, so that command, that ability to just uh, own a room, right? That presence, I think is a big thing in LA. I think that's something that when we hired Phil, it was... Dr. Buss, the way I remember it, maybe I'm remembering this wrong and you could help me out here. I think I remember it being something where Dr. Buss kind of like, so Riley teams were, um, always in great shape, right? They, he really prided those teams on being able to run those Showtime's teams were built on actual basketball principles, right? Uh, that rebound and run idea, no rebounds, no rings. That's a Pat Riley quote that. Kurt Rambis, AC Green as your rebounder and outlet passer, the ability to throw a good cross-court hit ahead, the ability to fill your lanes correctly, uh, out uh rebounding and then the the guy who gets the board pushing these are all like actual basketball concepts that you can get good at this is what i wanted with all of my basketball heart this season was to see freaking lebron james and anthony davis and russell westbrook flying up and down the court in lineups where guys could fill lanes next to them and really fulfilling these principles but these are like actual things that if you drill on and that you really focus on the details you can get good at and one of the hallmarks of this miami team Is there a bunch of dudes who were like, their star was like the 30th pick in the draft. They got a bunch of second round picks and undrafted guys who are actually like, like, I don't know if you watch Gabe Vincent filling in for Kyle Lowry. And it's like, he was perfectly solid. Like play good defense, knock down, catch and shoot threes, hit the occasional elbow pull up off of a handoff. Don't do anything stupid. Like they've got a bunch of guys like that. And then they've got a few guys that have some, you know, raw ability, but that focus on, Um, on physical fitness and the application of transition principles is the X's and O's that I think Riley really contributed to the game. So let's take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk more about Riles and that type of coach and, and the way that that presence matters. So the Riley is is more influential in that respect when we talk x's and o's and scheme and philosophy and all that we really think about it on written as x's and o's on a posy board where it's like okay this is the play you're gonna set a screen for this guy and all of that and that's certainly part of it but certain just philosophical things like i want to run I want to be able to capitalize on the most efficient plays in basketball. In order to run, we have to be in better shape than everybody is, uh, than everybody else is, and right, and it like these, all of that that kind of fractured nature of the Lakers season. There's a lot of things in a Miami team where it's like, oh, this concept makes sense. If you want to run, if you want to space the floor. You can develop guys without having picks, right? Like they have all of these organizational philosophies that align with each other. And they're not necessarily things that you would see on a posy board. So that's my thoughts on Riley. I would love to hear your recollection and and your thought of him, especially with respect to to the Lakers coaching.
1: So, one of the things that I think stands out to me about Riley is his ability to sort of evaluate the players on his own team and determine what the best course of action was to optimize them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that is X as a nose based, but it's not place. Mm-hmm. Riley inherited a championship team. That doesn't make him like, oh, well, you don't discredit him for that, but you understand how fortunate he was. Because of that, most coaches don't get that opportunity. Steve Kerr got that opportunity with the Warriors. Now, he coached them to their first championship, but they were primed at that point to go on the type of run. And Kerr enabled them by doing very similar things to Riley, which was, here is an ethos that will work for this specific group, and I'm going to implant it with this team, and then they're going to then become greater than the sum of their parts when the parts are all luxury level parts, right? So it's just like, oh my goodness, I'm building, I'm building a team where all of these pieces are some of the best iterations of the parts that you would need in, in order to build a team. And so one of the things that Riley figured out was, all right, well, what are the strengths of my team? Those are pretty well established by the point that he took over. But how do I then manage that in order to optimize the players? And the interesting, and then he did something different with the Knicks that he did with the Lakers. And he took the sort of bruising identity that existed within the Ewing and, and the Oakley and all of those guys and said, okay, well, this isn't going to be a run and gun team. Right, my guards are Doc Rivers and Derek Harper and Greg Anthony. Right, I don't have a Magic Johnson to run the fast break, so we're going to slow it down. We're going to play through the post more and yadi and on and on and on. And so Riley's adaptability as a tactician, as an X's and O's person, was more based off of who the players that that he had. And in a way, that's probably what the Lakers needed a little bit more of this season. What I will say though is is that the X's and O's of Pat Riley's time are much different than the X's and O's of mm-hmm. today's bass basketball. Yeah, just the the advent of of defensive three seconds and the ability to play zone and the removal of the illegal defense rules of the old illegal defense rules that Analytics. changes the yep. yeah yep that changes the geometry of the court and the alignments that are going to work and so. You talk about the triangle offense and they call that the triple post. Well, those Showtime Lakers actually had a triple post half court offense because guess what? Kareem was posting up and then James Worthy was posted up and Magic Johnson was posting up and all you had to do was float a guy up to the top of the key somewhere and his defender had to follow him by, and rule. by rule and then you created the space that way. And so your ability to understand offensive tactics and implement them is super important. The through line to me, though, in getting back to this Lakers search is being able to communicate with LeBron James and get a LeBron James team to look a certain way offensively that maybe as he ages, isn't always going to look the way that it looked when LeBron was like five years younger. Amen. And communicating that. And having the gravitas and the ability to generate and maintain that buy-in from a LeBron James, that's, that's the part of this that cannot be overlooked. And that's the part, Mike, where you talked about being in the room earlier, right? Well, that's the part that the people who are making this hiring decision, when they're in the room, they're going to need to be able to read it and they're going to have to be able to see it. And for all the like, oh, well, it's the stuff that Rob was saying during exit in in interviews about all decisions come back to me. And and I'm going to it's a very important that I be looked at as the sole decision maker. Is this your your Rob Polinka voice? We will be getting input from. (laughs) No, this is my like I'm bullshitting you voice. but I'm coming off professional enough. But Rob's going to have to understand what LeBron needs, even if he, even if LeBron is saying something different, right? And that's what didn't happen when the Lakers traded for Russell Westbrook. LeBron is saying, this is what I need. This is what I want. This is what's going to work for me, right? In theory, right? But reports in terms of how much influence LeBron had, but- when you're in the room making the decision, sometimes you have to know better. And so, I'll be when you're making this decision, you have to understand what is actually going to propel this team forward. So what is that? What's the answer to that, guys? Like I'd be interested to hear from everyone else here because I don't necessarily know, but that's the conversation to be had. Yes, it is. Yeah, I think the
3: the ideal situation is the Lakers make a coaching hire. And they find, you know, the the Eric Spolstra that sticks for 20 years. And this is this is how, by the way, this almost never happens, especially this day and age and especially with this kind of roster. But that's the ideal. Is there a a coach? And for me, I do like the idea of a younger coach and, and a coach who's kind of seen by his his own coaching peers as the up and coming guy. You know, as in that's those are conversations that I know some names of these guys just from talking to coaches. But mm-hmm. those aren't the names that you typically hear of the guys that are interviewing, because especially when you're when you're a franchise and you're starting to kind of leak to woes or whoever. And this is not the Lakers, by the way. There, there are a couple other open jobs. And you're, you're seeing, you know, hey, here, here's who some of the candidates are. And it's the names that you've been hearing the last couple of years. And there's that stuff gets complicated by whoever the coaching agents are. And then whoever the guys are on the teams that are good and that have sort of been been on that stage when everybody's watching one team. OK, so who are who are the assistant coaches on the Bucks of the last couple of years? And, and so there's all kinds of things that go into this. And sometimes that's the right answer. Sometimes it's not. But to just enter one other thing that we'll probably won't have time to get to in this pod there's there's become this there's been two young types of younger coaches that have been having success lately. One has been the the former NBA kind of role player journeyman guy like the Willie Green and Monty yep. Williams and Ime Udoka is most recently in this this field. Pat Riley, Lou. Bill
2: Jackson. This one goes back. Yeah, yeah.
3: That, and that one goes back. But but right now though, there's that's those guys sure. have been getting hired a lot. And then there's the the film room lifer coach didn't really play at a high level, but maybe he played at Portland, like Eric Spolstra, you know, maybe he played D D three and uh, like Frank Vogel and then got himself over to Kentucky to be the manager. Um, maybe Quinn Snyder, who was a, a high school stud in Seattle, mm-hmm. uh, went to Duke, but was not a, a star at Duke, like good player. Yeah. T- mm-hmm. uh, Taylor Jenkins. Like there's, so these are kind of the two different types of coaches. And then you have the, the slimmer one, the, the, the one that doesn't happen as much, but the Chauncey Billups or the Jason Kidd. Like the guy that was an all-star that commands that respect immediately. So there's all these types. And then whoever, once we see guys getting interviewed, we'll put them into one of those types. And so what I think is the best and why Spolstra I mentioned specifically is that he, he has the type of the coach who's the grinder, or the lifelonger, but he's also got that swagger. And when Vogel would talk about swag, he would be talking about like Rondo. But you'll hear players talk about Spolstra as having that swagger. And so sure. that to me is kind of what I like. I, I like a, a guy who's the lifer that absolutely has every basketball answer, but then also can tell a guy to sit the F down, you know, and, and I don't care who you are. And, and that's, again, that's harder to do with this Lakers team and with LeBron and with the whole hierarchy than it is other places. So there's the, please Pete, there's a lot there. I, I don't, I, I apologize. No, I, no,
2: please. Feel. I want to, I want to get into it. I actually want to get into it more. It's like, what is that? Like what Darius said is, Santa's- you got to have lebron's respect we are hierarchical in nature this is not a democracy right <laughs> this is something where we have clear leaders and we when we're at our best we have players at different echelons right you have and everybody knows their role they embrace their role one of the coaching mantras was be a star in your role and that is how it is and so getting the respect of our stars of lebron and ad is Priority number one, because in order to row in all of in all of the same direction, everybody needs to be on the same page, right?
3: Can I, and can I please. can I pause you on that? So, a young coach coming in and like, getting that type. You're, uh-huh. When you say you have to have the respect of LeBron and AD, you're almost eliminating like anybody that people haven't heard Why? of to some degree. Why? I um,
2: think I think that, I, so I I think mean, that you could earn LeBron and AD's respect.
3: No, so I. Okay. So I think we're we're basically saying the same thing now. I'm saying okay. that. So the narrative of you have to have, get a, a guy's respect. The names you start to hear after that are like longtime broadcaster X or.
2: Right. But that's, that's on, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier though, Mike, about like the whole projection of, yes, ag- and then agree. the reputation so, and all that. Like, so we're in the same so, like, place. Like, so, you know how much more LeBron knows about basketball than all of us? Like, you don't think yes. that's what D was talking about earlier, about like, oh, if you don't actually know what you're talking about, you're going to say something stupid in a film session or something where it's like, look, that LeBron is like paying attention. Oh, yeah. But then oh, you like, wait, yeah. what? You, you yeah. can't
3: ask him a, if, you, if you ask him a question about the game, he'll look at you like, right. what and, and Kobe did the same thing. Yes. You know? and so, yes. Well, you
1: better be right. When you, you ask that be question, right. yeah, you better be. I remember. I remember watching, and this is a total sidebar, but I remember watching an NBA Finals, and it was when LeBron was with the Heat, and Rob Mahoney, who's one of my favorite basketball writers, he now writes for The Ringer, but he used to cover the Mavs, and he used to, anyways. And Rob had basically asked LeBron about. He asked him an X's and O's question in one of those Finals press conferences where you they hand you the mic. And you're like, eh, yep, i Rob Mahoney from whatever outlet that he was working from at the time. And he asked LeBron, I think, a question about some sort of like coverage defensively or offensively within the pick and roll or something like I, I can't remember the specifics of it, but it was a smart question. LeBron gave him a very thoughtful response. He's and great. that's when you knew there's just like, yeah, mm-hmm. you get it like he it was just like he had that glean in his eye a little bit like ah you speak language yeah, that i speak yes like, maybe nobody else saw, speaks here yeah you saw something yeah that is meaningful that impacts the game right it's not the most important thing it's not a highlight play it's not what were you thinking when question it's like they were doing this you started to do that what goes into that Yada, right. And it's like, ah, yes, I see it that way. And and so, Mike, in getting back to you there, there is a part of that where it's just like that, that sort of communication, you need that inherent within you. And too often we do eliminate the, the guys whose names we had not heard. And I honestly think that the Lakers as an organization have too often gone for the names that they do know rather than taking more of a chance. And this goes back to Pete's point about when the Lakers hired Phil Jackson. Now, Phil Jackson was a name that everyone knew. And so there was this idea of like, oh, there the Lakers go again, just hiring the highest paid dude that they could get. because this narrative has gone back like they get the stars but phil had the goods though so it's one thing if you bring that
3: guy in that's got Mm -hmm. the goods then then it's fine you can be as big of a star as you want it's just it's more of the like did who knew who nick nurse or even like chris finch now uh that's to be determined but there's those those type of guys that were coaching in england right could that guy get lebron's respect well sure if they sat down and talked about basketball for 10 minutes he'd be like oh okay that's you have an you have a baseline of what i need now you also need to have a little swagger with lebron but that's that's another
2: thing What but also the the way that we view those coaches as as successful is by taking teams that were bad or below average and like, hey, look at them like they're they lost in the first round. And like that was probably the ceiling for their talent. Like you there's a certain amount of. Mutual basketball respect, I think we have for teams that like get about as far as they should go. That's a whole different equation when you've got championship expectations in LA with the Lakers. And so, like, being able to do that is not necessarily the same thing as, but Phil also came in with those credentials. Like, that Chicago was the center of the basketball universe during the 90s. And so, like, there was no situation that Phil Jackson could walk into and be like, oh, Shaq and Kobe and the Lakers and Jerry West and Dr. Buss. Man all fine and that's not true of everyone nothing was too big
1: for a guy like phil jackson and that's the that's the backdrop or the that's the baggage that he brings with him in a positive way right Mm -hmm. and so whenever we talk about the lakers and i honestly think it makes lakers fans sound obnoxious at times to talk like this but watching the team For decades on end, you understand that it's rooted in truth, is that there is a little bit extra of spotlight, of pressure, of just, oh, damn.
2: Why can't everybody shoot in LA? Right. Like, this is is what it is.
1: I honestly thought that one of the reasons why it was a bit of a rude awakening for Russ, Mm -hmm. it was the... He was billed as the star and a homecoming, and this is all going to be great for him. And look, I lapped up those storylines as well. Like, oh, I'm Mm -hmm. a kitten in warm milk. Here comes Russell Westbrook. He's going to be motivated and yada, yada, yada. But what happened was what happens to nearly every other star or any other player who is placed into a prominent position within the organization or a head coach as well is that when the lights come on, you better perform, and because the expectation to perform is going to be right in your face every single time you step onto that basketball court. And when, in the same way, Mike, that Alex Caruso talked talked about, man, I go around town, people know my name, they're coming up to me and they're asking me for aud- they're asking me for autographs, and he's Alex Caruso, right? that same idea of they showed him that love because he was he was playing to his level the level that he was playing to right if you're the opposite if they think that you should be playing better that it's same feeling goes around you the way that that cloud of dirt goes with pig pen in in The peanuts cartoons where it's just like, oh, there's that, there's that stink that's just following you around because you ain't got it. And every and you feel you feel that. Mm -hmm. And if one thing happened to Russ that he probably did not expect was going to happen to him in his hometown, it was that. It was that that permeation of stink that just sort of followed him around, where suddenly you can't shake it. And that, if that gets into you. And you don't have the ability to sort of forget that, to to disregard it, and to come back and be like, nah, whatever. I'm back at it. Then you're going to struggle. And a head coach, whoever the head coach is, that's the part of things where I feel like, oh, he's going to need to understand what it's going to be like to be here and coaching this team and coaching the Lakers and all of that that goes into it, coaching LeBron, everything else, right? And so That's the interesting part to me is not everyone's built for it. And finding the guy that is, is super important.
2: We got to wrap up here. I could talk about this for another 45 minutes and I I think we will. Let's continue this conversation. Great to get this one uh, kicked off. We'll be back tomorrow. We may continue this conversation, may talk playoffs, seeing how uh, things go tonight. But until then, you've been listening to the Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time.
1: Ains has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn. He's double team. Just pass out of front. Broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. And Magic got it. Magic fires. It's in. Yeah, the Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. With Three seconds left. That next to the winner. It. It's on the way. down! George Bryant. 48 points. 16 rebounds. Back
0: There's, There's the, the move. Score. Two, going. Score. one, three. It's over. It. It. Shot popping out of five. Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry.
3: That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? Two point one seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic.